welcome back to Weekly Specials. This is your host, Will Gadara, and I'm thankful that you're listening. We have a really good episode today, and it's reminding me of a couple things that I wanted to share. First is what the Welcome Conference was founded to be. Anthony and I started this seven or eight years ago. It's hard to know much about time these days. But we started because there were chef conferences happening around the world where chefs from all different countries were getting together and connecting to form community and inspiring one another to pursue their craft with more intention, sharing ideas, sharing moments. And we recognized that that was lacking for those of us who worked in dining rooms. We wanted some forum where we could come together and form community because it is through community that a craft evolves more considerably. But one of the main differences we decided to establish at the onset was while in chef conferences, there many times were cooking demos, we never wanted the welcome conference to feature service demos because the welcome conference was never about service. It was about hospitality. When I was coming up in the restaurant business, one of my first jobs was at Tabla in New York City. And that was at a point in my career where I always felt the need to have specific interview questions that I used. Now an interview with me is more of a just get to know you session. I like to get to know people as human beings and identify whether they are someone that I think I'd work well with. But one of the questions I used back then was what's the difference between service and hospitality? And the best answer I ever got was from someone who embarrassingly I ended up not hiring. But she said, service is black and white and hospitality is culture. In an interview today, you hear talk of the distinction between service and kindness. Kindness, graciousness, hospitality. It's a craft. It is something we can pursue. It's something that we can all get better at. And one of the most Resonant parts of this conversation for me was identifying that fact. The other story it brought to mind was I'm very, very close with the entire Canlis family from Restaurant Canlis out in Seattle. Mr. Canlis, Chris Canlis, has always been a mentor to me. And when I first set out to be the owner of my own company, I went out to visit him and we sat down and we had lunch and he gave me a piece of advice. He said that a lot of people say the secret to happiness is to maintain a separation between life and work so that you can pursue each one individually. He said, in our business, I really believe that the opposite holds true. If you really, really love what you do, you need to let the two wash over one another. Otherwise, you're always going to feel guilty when you're doing one that you're not doing the other. And oftentimes, the same virtues apply to each especially if you're approaching them in the right way. Hopefully you'll understand those two stories when you listen to the conversation that's coming up. We're welcoming Colleen back to the show. And I'm, I'm so excited for you to listen to this conversation. Welcome back to Weekly Specials. It's the Weekly Specials. Weekly Specials. Good news coming at you. The Weekly Hello, everyone. My name is Colleen Vincent, and thanks for joining us on Weekly Specials. 
I'm so happy to be here to host today's show and to have Chef Eric Williams here with me. Chef Eric is the owner and chef at the James Beard award-winning Virtue Restaurant and Bar, which opened in November, 2019. He has over 25 years of fine dining experience and an insatiable study of history and art as they relate to food culture. Chef is a Chicago native, which we'll get into in our conversation. And I'm really eager to talk to him after our earlier conversation on gatekeeping for the Welcome Conference. Chef Eric is somebody that I admire. He has been named by the New York Times as one of America's Black chefs, changing food dialogue in America. Virtue also won Best New Restaurant on Esquire Magazine's annual issue. And he's been included on the hit Netflix series, Somebody Feed Phil. So Chef, I'm pleased to welcome you. And if you don't mind kind of talking about your pride and joy, Virtue Restaurant in Chicago, Illinois. First of all, Colleen, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to have the opportunity to speak with you. Looking forward to a very engaged conversation. Virtue is a concept that was bred through my perspective and how I've been informed as a chef and operator over you know, some odd 20-something years. I'm a man of faith, so virtues are in line. Virtue, by its very definition, means of high moral standard. And obviously, I'm a chef. And so standards come into play very often as it relates to restaurants, being that restaurants are expected to have one of the highest standards of sanitation, food preparation, service, and this intense focus on execution and technique. And so those things all make sense to me in one space. And it feels really great because we couldn't have opened that restaurant at a better time in our city and in our nation overall with all that we are um, challenged with and have been challenged with via the pandemic and the protests that directly relate to injustice in our country. Virtue is anchored in two specific virtues, which happen to be hospitality and kindness. And there's this idea that the world craves kindness. And of all places, restaurant spaces seem to be devoid of an intense focus on kindness. We spend a lot of time on service mm. and, and proper technique, but it doesn't cost anybody anything to just smile and welcome someone into an environment or into a space. It's a way to disarm people. It's a way to help people reset. And it's a way for us to be able to set the table, legitimately, no pun intended. <laughs> and so that being stated, virtue is, is near and dear to my heart. We spent a lot of time working towards the goal of not merely training people, but developing people and helping people understand how processes can translate from their everyday existence at home to their workplace and from their workplace to their home. 
And so the bulk of my career, there was this need, there was this standard of leaving your your home life at home. And I think it would be said, you know, you need to leave your personal problems at the door. For many of us that spend anywhere between 10 to 16 hours in a space, there's no separation. And where I found the most separation, if any, in my workspace was when I was feeding on adrenaline and I could convert my energy from that of worry, concern, or anxiousness to producing a product or into inviting someone into our space. And so I would combat my issues through my work rather than separate my work completely from it. And the work has a way of providing a level of ease or a level of distraction that feels a lot more healthy to me. And so we've taught many young people how to do this, and we've also taught them skills along the way that help with the many things and the many obstacles that we find ourselves being faced with outside of our workspaces. And I'll talk a little bit about that as we continue to talk. Well, first, I'm hearing that your work is almost a meditative process for you, but also I'm hearing that it takes a while to kind of start figuring those types of things out. It takes a certain kind of maturity. So, you know, if we can step back and talk about your career before you've reached this, you know, this high point as chef owner of a award-winning and transformative space. So you are a Chicago native, correct? Yes, I am. Absolutely. And what parts? I live West Chicago in a neighborhood called Lawndale. And it's a pretty under-invested or divested community. And we chose, my wife and I chose to move here about 12 years ago, I want to say. And it's actually the neighborhood I was born in. My mother moved me out because of how dangerous the neighborhood was. And at some point, I elected to reinvest in the same community. And so when you were growing up, and I, you know, I know you moved out of the neighborhood, was it always a dream to be a chef, to open your own restaurant, to mentor others? Let's talk a little bit about that particular aspect of your journey. So I didn't grow up aspiring to be a chef. I decided at some point in my life that I wanted to be in real estate because I love the art of deal-making in real estate. In addition to that, I love space. I love thinking about why spaces are laid out the way that they're laid out, how as we accumulate more, we need more space, and how you reconfigure or repurpose space. I also love the architecture and the craftsmanship in older spaces. When you look at a graystone property or graystone building, it doesn't take long to recognize that there are things, there are features in that space that we don't have the opportunity to reproduce. And one of them that, that comes to mind often is like, like the home that has a gargoyle in front of it or has marble columns. And so there's an attraction 
two things for me that are that are rough and rustic. And I'm very inspired by the opportunity to convert those things and bring them to their luster or push them forward. And so that transition, that transitional space in my in my mind left a lot of room as I worked through kitchens in an attempt to fund this dream in real estate. And I continued to have opportunities in restaurants. I, I worked my way through the ranks. I don't know if you're exactly sure of my background, but I started out on a salad station in a restaurant and worked my way up to a partnership with the owner of that space. And so, yeah, that's it. I mean, you, you work with food, you're working with, with rough and rustic product, you're trying to convert it into something that feels appealing and that best represents what that ingredient is. It feels the same way for me at homes. And so fortunately, I was able to merge those two experiences. You said something and it, it kind of just tickled something in my brain. I always say that it takes a special kind of person to be a chef. And, and sometimes when other people say that, they say it in more of a dysfunctional way. But, you know, there's the heart of a chef, even though you had this other dream. And as I listen to your words, I'm just wondering if it's possible for you to kind of articulate what is at the heart of your chef, yourself. I don't know if I could give you a couple of words to talk about what's at the heart of me being a chef. Well, I take that back. Without sounding like I'm trying to reinforce my brand, the brand is what I believe in. That's why it's the name that it is. The heart and the soul of what I am as a chef is virtue. I want to cook above reproach. I want to live in a way that allows me to live above reproach. And that doesn't mean I don't make errors or mistakes or misspeak or, or get misquoted. What it means is I get up every day with a high expectation for myself. And at the core of that, I not only have that expectation for myself, but we, we encourage the same expectation for the people that we bring into our lives by way of friendships, by way of intimate relationships, and most importantly, as it relates to my workspace, by way of our team. We intentionally don't call our team employees, because we don't want our folk to feel like they are working for us. We want our team to be committed to the ideal of team. When one of us loses, we all lose. When one of us wins, we all win. It doesn't matter in basketball if you ever make it off the bench in the finals. If the five players that, that close out that game are able to seal a win, Every single person gets a championship ring. Every single person is spraying champagne. Nobody gets put in the hallway while, while the festivities are going on. And so it's challenging for folk without a ton of experience, unless they're watching someone else's experience closely, to understand how you can be on the ready to produce at a high level even though you may not be the person producing it in this instance. And for many of us that live, work, and play in the community of hospitality, we recognize that you're only a few minutes 
away from having to step up. You could go five years without being able to get that position, whatever that position is. You could go five minutes without being able to get into that position. And the person who waits five years is usually saying, it's about time. I should have had this position four years ago. The person who gets it in five minutes is saying, they didn't give me enough time to understand the position. They're not giving me enough support to be able to do that that I need to do to be successful. And the reality is, whether you wait a long time or, you, or, you're, or you're offered the opportunity in a short period of time, you best be prepared. Exactly. Now, you know, Chef, let's talk about virtue specifically. So you work in fine dining, alternately trying to fund this, this other dream, and then this new dream appears. Is there a particular inspiration? Is there, are there a series of events that led you to, you know, firmly land on, you know, I want to have my own restaurant. I want to return to the community that birthed me. I want to invest in that community on both the like fiscal side and then, and the people side, like how does that concept come to be? That concept comes to be because, well, first, let me answer the first question. The first question is, is there a particular thing that inspires me? The ideal that I get to work with people that I've developed and see them further develop, not just themselves, but the next group of young culinarians and folk in hospitality is that's it's almost overwhelmingly a space of humility. And in addition to that, I have a four-year-old son. And to be in a space of ownership, A, and leadership, B, is a way for me to be an example to my son of what could be and what the possibilities are. And that's very, very important to me. So with regard to the restaurant specifically, you know, you've received like a lot of accolades in a space that very much looks a certain way and certainly in your market. And as a person who kind of takes a broad view of the industry and has a particular perspective about what hospitality means, what are your feelings about all these awards and accolades in an industry that generally doesn't celebrate people that look like you and myself until maybe more recently? Well, I feel like it's time. That's, that's first. And I, I feel like it's been a long time coming. However, I believe that the industry is heading in the right direction as it embraces diversity and as it is making rapid or sweeping changes to be more inclusive. I also think there is a responsibility to people of color to continue to keep their foot on the gas and to keep pressing to make sure that we are visibly seen, heard, and producing at a high level. It's unfortunate that we still recognize Black chefs, Latino ex chefs, and then we recognize our peers and our comrades as chefs. We don't, we don't ever say, you know, best new white chef. And so it's unfortunate that we, we haven't gotten to the space yet 
where humanity is first and race is an afterthought. However, just like most climbs, there are steps. And I, I believe we are moving in the right direction. I believe there's a lot of work to do. There was a lot of work to do before we were being recognized. There will continue to be a lot of work to do. And I read a saying once really early in my career, and the saying stated that there's plenty of room at the top, but there's no room to sit down. And so I'm constantly reminded as I, as I climb to make sure that I am throwing a rope back for others to, to have way, but also that as long as I'm working to be best in class, there will always be more work to do. And so, you know, when you talk about more work to do, obviously on the part of food media and certainly other aspects of the industry, there's a lot of work to be done. But as far as the community, are there recommendations, advice, suggestions that you have for other Black chefs that are in this industry? I don't know if I'm equipped to give a lot of recommendations to the populace. I think things that have best suited me are diligence, the idea that I don't ever let off of the standard. I have encouraged relationships in my life. I have embraced vulnerability, which is hard for many of us. And I've taken the approach that people can't really take anything from me. I have to release it. And I mean that to the most extreme space. And so with that being said, if I'm not concerned about what someone's going to take, then it allows me a lot. It allows me the ability to be a lot more open to what I can receive. And I I don't blame people when when people make attempts to take advantage of me. Sometimes I question why, especially when I think they're really good people. And then all of a sudden we get to the space. But I've lived long enough to understand that in desperation, you will do very weird things. And you tend to do them to the people who are the closest to you. It's unfortunate, but it's the truth. And so we see it play out in sibling relationships. We see it play out in marriages and, 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 and you know, spousal relationships. And so I try to leave a lot of room for growth for myself, and I try to leave a lot of room for advancement. I think one of the things that, that was the most challenging for me as I moved from one space to the next, being from the space of being a chef to ownership, was this idea that I fought for every inch in kitchens. And then once you start to cross over to operations and there's more accounting, more bookkeeping, more accountability and a more focused approach to leadership, then you realize that now you got to take off the boxing gloves and put on velvet gloves. And there's more finesse expected. And where I could have went at somebody directly, I can't take that same approach. I can't be as aggressive. I could be, but, but it's not the formidable approach. And I get more out of the approach to finesse and having a softer touch. And it's the same way with finishes when you think about composing a dish. Searing a piece of meat or grilling something is intense heat. It's an intense formal cooking, but your finishes can't be as intense. 
as some of the cooking methods that you might use in cooking. And so that's kind of the way I see my path. It's funny, we're having all these conversations about people's careers and and how they got to their present point, their present level of success. And yet we're all in kind of a, a stasis mode because of the broader pandemic and the the politics, the socioeconomics, the physical challenges that it presents. And so chefs, of course, are not immune to this by a long shot. And so I'm just wondering, like, what you've been doing, what have you been percolating since we've all kind of, the world has stopped? I haven't had time to do a lot of percolating. So we being my team at Virtue, as soon as our dining rooms were slated to be closed, we spent the total of two days shifting gears and reworking our approach to providing uh, meals. And that took us right into doing meal kits, which were meals for four, being two adults, two children, or however you want to mix that up, for $48. And then we, we did that for multiple weeks because that space allowed us the opportunity to stabilize both the space and our team. The average young person working in a restaurant is not equipped to go without income immediately. And so... By, by shifting gears, it allowed, allowed us to have a slower, a slower period before we came to a screeching halt. And that allowed our team to start to put away some funds. It allowed us to start a fundraising campaign, which we in turn offered employees that were in need a sum of money that was a forgivable loan, provided they came back for a period of time. And once we felt the space and our team were stable, then we reduced our risk and created a more intense focus on folk that we had witnessed really getting battered. And that wasn't the community and our team, it was healthcare workers. We saw multiple weeks of people sending out distress calls for more equipment, better equipment, clear access to information. And we didn't think that a meal was going to cure their need for tools. But we do know that a meal is a way to show someone that you care and that they matter. And you can feel left out when you're working as hard as they are working and putting their lives at risk and you're not getting a response. And so that proved to be a successful idea on our part. And so we did that for multiple weeks. At some point, our city started flattening the curve. Hospitals started doing routine visits and checkups. Dentist offices started to open. People were able to get outpatient surgeries. And so those are signs to us that hospitals were starting to stabilize a bit. 
in Chicago. We were starting to catch up in our ability to test much more rapidly. We went from getting results in, in 48 hours to you can get results the same day now in many locations in Chicago. And so that was our cue that we could now transition into the opportunity that was afforded us to serve meals outside the restaurant by way of a sidewalk cafe. And then we've recently been afforded the opportunity to do 25% in our restaurant. All of those steps take a bit of energy. And for most, for most operators and or owners, to include the entire team, folk would say that we're not reopening, we're opening. Because that's what it feels like. It feels like a startup. Every time we shift, every time we pivot from one space to the next, the idea that we went from plated food to food in boxes, the logistics of physically getting takeout out of the door, the logistics of something that would be, would seem to be very simple, but happens to be pretty difficult until you do it a few times. And that is feeding 250 people two times in a day in two different spaces. How does the food get there? Like you can't call an Uber and, and just have your Uber drop off 250 meals. 250 individual packages do not fit in the car. They actually don't even fit in a, in a, in a caravan. And so it was a lot of strategic planning, a lot of logistics, and a lot of willingness to just not quit. And so we've been in survival mode the entire time this pandemic has gone on. And, that, and, I, and I didn't include the idea that storefronts were being threatened by looting. And then what that shift took and the heightened amount of emotions that people all over our city were experiencing, especially people of color, as it related to whether or not their space would be broken into, how you protect your home, how you protect yourself and your community, and how you personally felt about both sides of the coin. The physical looting and why you may have thought that you understand people should loot. So I've had a lot of emotional highs and lows over the past, I believe it's been six months. So, and you said a lot, Chef, and I, I see that you have this sense of like, this real sense of community and social responsibility. Do you think that chefs have a social responsibility beyond opening a restaurant and, and serving like delicious, lovely food? Like, do you think that this new era of more chefs actually fully participating in community efforts is something that needs to stay and evolve? What would you say about that in particular for the entire industry as a person who has this strong sense of like social responsibility? I think it's everyone's responsibility to commit to community and to the liberties that we're all supposed to be afforded, but we've yet to receive. If we think about what the Declaration of Independence says in one sentence, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, then is everyone receiving it? And, and if they're not, then whose responsibility is it 
to ensure it and to give access to it. And to say that that's not my problem is as un-American as un-American can be. And so as citizens, not as chefs, not as owners, not as black people, not as white people, not as Asians, Hispanics, or any other nationality that you want to claim, protect, and or be proud of. As citizens, it is our duty to preserve and protect the things that are meaningful to human beings. And part of what we're challenged with is this idea that the Constitution fully applies to some groups and does not apply to some subgroups. And there's no, there are no subhumans. We hear arguments and we hear people being confronted on the daily as it relates to pet rights, legitimately, right? Animal rights are huge. And so how do we get so off base that animals have better protections than humans do? If someone loses their pet and posts signs, we have a good chance of a community that cares being completely focused. I mean, laser focused on someone, especially if it's a child's pet. Mm -hmm. It's one thing if it's an adult, but if it's a child's pet, like parents all over get engaged around this idea that that poor child has lost their pet. And we have children missing every day and traded, not just missing, They've been kidnapped. And I'm not saying that communities are failing to find children. My question would be, is the entire community as engaged as it could be? So my statement speaks more to the responsibility of mankind or humankind than it does what chefs and operators are supposed to do. And so when you hear me speak of the space of my social responsibility, you hear me speaking from a space of humanity. It's my responsibility to make sure that every single person that is employed by us and every single person that is a guest in our space, every single person that services us, whether it be HVAC or our our FedEx delivery driver, every person that we engage that takes the time to enter into that space needs to be treated with a certain level of respect. And respect just happens to be a virtue. Thank you, Chef. And so... My question is, if you could look into a crystal ball, because I know we are in very strange and uncertain times, where do you see or where would you hope to see restaurant culture going? I think we're going to make a mass exodus, and I think we are making a mass exodus from the ways of old. And I think we have finally cracked the glass ceiling, and there is an opportunity for a breakthrough. And that breakthrough looks like the world that we dine in. It looks like the world that we live in. And it no longer looks whitewashed. And so I look forward to that new space. I look forward to a space where we're not just focused on color or language or specifics that we consider foundational cooking. 
But we're looking at the foundations of cooking in every region, every land, every back road, and every form of service. I think that it is time for us to lay aside gender and allow women to decide how hard a job is for themselves and not allow men to dictate what the rigor is in that space. And I think we need to be empathetic and sensitive to every gender. And there's this idea that, you know, like sensitivity equals soft. Mm-hmm. It's not soft when our, when our mothers are being sensitive to us as men. It's not sensitivity when we're being, when we're being embraced and or caressed. And you could say that, well, that doesn't, it, that's not supposed to exist in the workplace. I would dispute that and say that a great many Americans started out through agriculture. And the people who worked in agriculture on your land were your family members. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't your neighbors. And so many people had, many families had a lot of kids so that they would have built-in labor in their, in, in their processes. And we've gotten away from things that matter and things that make sense. And we've gone backwards and started to embrace things that don't make any sense, like greed, selfishness, a lack of empathy and concern for people around us. It's just, not, it's just a toxic way to operate. Thank you, Chef. Um, that was brilliant. Um, I feel very inspired. I want to thank you for joining me on the Welcome Conference podcast weekly special. I want to thank you all for listening in for these really actually inspiring and brilliant words from Chef Eric Williams. And I hope to see you again on our next podcast as I continue to host many of the people that I admire in this industry. Thank you so much for tuning in and hope you'll join us again next week here on Weekly Specials. This show is produced by the Welcome Conference team, including Aaron Ginsberg, Anthony Rudolph, Sandra DiCapua, and Brian Camless. And our music is courtesy of Aaron Raytier. Special thanks to our creative collaborators at Resi. And thank you to our longtime partners at American Express and Sam Pellegrino for their unwavering support. During a time when we're not able to come together in person, it's that support that allows us to connect with you here. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And to learn more about the Welcome Conference, visit welcomeconference.org or find us on Instagram at Welcome Conference. It's the weekly specials. Weekly specials. Good news coming at you. The weekly specials. Do, 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 do.